This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Google justifies in-house processor. And EU plans homegrown exascale. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening into another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research. I'm Addison Snell. That's Michael Feldman. Michael, This Week in HPC, a couple of interesting stories that all have to do, in a sense, with homegrown technologies. And I want yep. to start on the hyperscale side with an interesting story from Google. We've known that Google and perhaps a few others of the major hyperscale companies have invested in their own in-house development. And now Google is really uh, doing a bit of a revelation out to the market to justify their investment there by showing some of the details of their TPU or tensor processing unit. Right. The TPU has been around for a while. People have known about it. It's just Google hasn't talked about it very much. They, uh, they started deploying these around 2015, and they've been running them and scaling them up through their cloud ever since their uh, their cloud infrastructure using is using more and more of the of the deep learning capability for their their core products like like search and translate and uh, you know voice matching that sort of thing. So uh, TPU's been in effect, and they're just starting to talk about it. And some of the advantages, of course, Google doesn't talk about any current technology. It always talks about it in the past tense. So now we're just sort of catching up on what they've been doing and, and why they've been doing it. Yeah, this TPU or tensor processing unit, first of all, it's probably worth a brief mention. We use the word vector a lot in high-performance computing. Tensor is starting to come up on the hyperscale side. Uh, a tensor, like in TensorFlow, the benchmark, now we have a tensor processing unit. A tensor is like a vector, but where a vector is just uh, sort of a length and a direction, uh, a, uh, a tensor can show the linear relationship between anything, including three-dimensional spaces or other vectors, vectors and scalars. And they're useful in the inference side of deep learning when you uh, have your voice search or your text search and you're, you're doing that downstream benefit from the training that you did earlier. The training portion, which we've talked about a lot, has leveraged a lot of the really heavyweight uh, processing elements like a GPU you might use to accelerate your training on a large data set. And those get consolidated into here's the portion of my infrastructure that's really doing training for deep learning. The inference part is a lighter weight calculation that relies on tensors, but this, because it's more connected to the end user on the hyperscale side, really presumably has to be distributed through a lot more of the hyperscale infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, I would assume these tensor processing units are very, are ubiquitous in in Google's uh, basically service-facing cloud. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of uh, basically all the core products like search and Google Translate and image recognition and all the things that people use, even the voice voice searching when you when you tell Google something just with your own voice, it, it does that translation. So I'm guessing there's there's literally, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these things spread across the world doing that processing in in near real time. And that was one of the, the things they needed to do when they when they uh, designed this, they needed something with a, a very low latency. It's not a really a throughput-heavy processor. It's something that's going to turn uh, that inference around very quickly and give you a, a very fast result. So it was optimized for this inferencing very much so. It uses 
8-bit processing instead of 16 or 32 or, or certainly 64-bit processing. It it does everything in 8 bits, which is much more efficient than than the higher precision uh, data structures. And and the rest of it is built around doing sort of this one thing. I mean, there's different types of neural networks behind this, and it does those all to with varying degrees of adeptness. But it it basically does all these things for its its deep learning uh, capabilities, and that's what it was made for. And it's it's very efficient at doing that. What they found was that their TPU performed 15 to 30 times faster than something like a K80 GPU from NVIDIA or a Haswell CPU from uh, Intel. And performance per watt, which was the, the really critical factor for Google, was, was even better. The TPU was better than either the K80 or the Haswells by a factor of 30 to 80. So they got you know, well into an order of magnitude better energy efficiency. And when you're talking about the Google Cloud and the extensiveness of that, you know, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars over the period of a year in energy savings to get that kind of uh, that kind of energy efficiency. Yeah, it's interesting when we think about accelerators or coprocessors from the HPC side, you often think of it as a, as a heavier weight processor that's really going to do heavy lifting on a particular type of calculation. These tensor processors certainly are addressing particular kinds of operations, but they're doing it really in almost more of a lightweight processor. Now, right. they'll attach multiple of these TPU cards onto a single host, but here now you're, you're, you're using a relatively heavier weight processor and then farming things out to these tensor processor units in order to get an advantage. Um, yeah, they're talking about an advantage in performance, but the key metric, like you're saying here, is performance per watt that I can deliver the same or better performance with less power consumption, really serve that back out to the end user in an intelligent way. And when you look at what the payoff is for a company like Google, you know, these tier one hyperscale companies spending over a billion dollars a year on IT, and Google might even be multiples of that. Right. And if you're talking about a processing unit that has to be involved in a lot of their hyperscale infrastructure, start multiplying out that volume that's quite a lot of savings. Right, and they use the example, they, they did sort of a, a back-of-the-envelope calculation. If everybody used Google Voice, for example, just for three minutes a day, all, their, all their, their user base, they would have had to double the data center infrastructure in their cloud just to support that one thing, and they realized that that was going to get out of hand very quickly. So that's when they started to think really seriously about building a chip that would do this much more efficiently. So the fact that they have something that's that's 30 to 80 times as efficient uh, helps them not to have to you know, basically you know, pave the whole earth with Google data centers to, to serve their user base. Well, definitely the sort of thing that, that we expected was coming in terms of custom uh, processor architectures, other types of custom development coming out of this tier one hyperscale space. This might be the leading edge of other similar types of announcements that we'll see in the years ahead. Now, we've got a related story more on the traditional HPC and the exascale supercomputing side. We've made a big deal out of the fact that the Taihu light system, the Sunway Taihu light system in China, 
was essentially built, not bought. This was uh, an entirely internally designed system where, sure, they may have spent uh, $300 million in R&D, but they didn't actually spend that externally anywhere. It doesn't really fit in your market model anywhere or our market model anywhere because, uh, you know, they're, they're designing things internally. And that raised a lot of eyebrows in terms of how efficient that was going to be for the uh, for the space overall for as as they go toward exascale now there's a movement inside the EU in order to um, follow the same path with a custom design homegrown architecture within the EU in order to address their I'll say national but it's really continent wide uh, exascale initiatives. Yeah, and it, it it's sort of interesting. They they didn't go into a lot of detail on how much of these exascale systems would be homegrown. The thing they talked about specifically was low power processors, um, which is basically at the heart of, of of most systems. But they didn't talk really about the interconnects or the memory subsystem or the storage subsystem or anything like that. I think the focus here is is going to be on the the processor and. and designing and building something that is is eu specific or at least um something that's designed by by one of the vendors in the eu and, and can be tapped locally uh they didn't talk about which processor that might be but considering how much uh research and development and interest has gone into arm i i would guess they're looking very seriously at some arm implementation to uh to do this yeah, that would be definitely an interesting path forward is is to look at, first of all, what's the processor going to be? And there are only a few options. They could license an ARM processor. They could license an open power processor. Right. Those would be the two that would immediately leap to mind. Then there's the question of what the interconnect is going to be. Now, the, the most dominant supercomputing interconnect that's native to Europe is going to the bull uh, BXI interconnect, and you've pointed out that Bull has done projects with ARM and has been involved in some of those. So it's possible that that, that we would see a an ARM uh, BXI system. But they have a few other options, such as uh, Extol or similar to the Sunway Taihu Light system. Uh, you could buy silicon from a company like Mellanox and still implement something on top of it. It seems like there are a few different ways this could go. Yeah, I mean, when, when you talk about indigenous computers, I mean, homegrown computers, it's not necessarily to think that you need every specific component in there to be made in your country. You might take off-the-shelf material from from other countries on sort of a global marketplace. But I think the idea here, as, as within the Chinese initiative, is to relieve your dependency on uh, North American providers for sort of the core capability, in this case, the central processor or, or even accelerators and, and break away. And then, you know, it, it's, it becomes a process. Eventually you maybe you can move out to the interconnects and the memory and, you know, the, the racks themselves, all, all this information, all these, all these components. But um, I, I think this first step that uh, this project in Europe is, is looking at is to develop something internally. And, we should we should mention it's it's interesting there the plan or the plan as it's outlined today is they're looking to field actually two European XSL computers in basically the same time frame as as the US systems basically installed in 2022 
um, and go into production in 2023. So they're they're looking at very similar time frames, but uh, they're a little bit uh, behind the curve right now since obviously this uh, this development hasn't really started. Other than if they pick up on the arm uh, the arm process implementation, some of that research has started in, in the Mont Blanc project and other areas. We just talked about the uh, some of the stuff in the UK, although they're not strictly part of the EU anymore. Uh, there's research going on there for uh, for ARM systems, and some are being deployed now. But um, it's going to be tough to to build a, a a system, an exascale system with a homegrown processor by 2022. But if they get the funding, there's still there's still time to do that. It just takes basically a small engineering team to to bring up a new uh, processor design or an implementation of an existing spec like ARM. It's maybe a little more complicated than that if you bring the software functionality into it and you're trying to right. build a complete ecosystem around it. Uh, you know, getting a getting an exaflop stood up is one thing, and running other applications on it is going to be another thing that they have to uh, address. And I, I am interested by in these initiatives. Um, now you were saying same time frame as some of the U.S. systems. That would be the original 2022-2023 systems. There's also this advanced architecture, what they were originally calling a novel architecture. Right. Uh, and RFIs for that actually just went in last week. Uh, the Exascale Computing Project is is now reviewing the RFIs before uh, reducing that down to an RFP. But those are very live bids that'll be going on for. Uh, an advanced architecture to get the U.S. to exascale in 2021. So there's all kinds of uh, things in flight, and we might have predicted that as we got closer to exascale, things would really heat up in terms of what we're going to see. But uh, one thing is very clear is that it's wide open. It's not uh, It's not certain what all of these architectures will be or what the dominant architecture will be in the years ahead as we go into more not just one point in time, but what becomes the overall exascale era. Yeah, and we should also mention that this uh, this initiative by the Europeans is not just for exascale. I mean, they, they've noted that their their lack of HPC uh, manufacturing production, basically their production of, of componentry within within the EU, has basically hurt sort of the community there. I mean, they're basically. Uh, they're basically always trailing North America or in some cases China now in, in putting out sort of state-of-the-art systems because they just don't have the native capability to, to innovate and design around something that they have more control over. So part of this is not just on the, uh, on the production side, but on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the vendor side as well. They think they can build up a, a much more stable uh, ecosystem of vendors and users if they have some uh, domestic capability to actually furnish a lot of the key technology. It's going to be interesting to watch, Michael. And, uh, you know, what can we say? This will be a lot to talk about when we get to ISC this June. Yeah, absolutely. This will be an interesting topic there. All right. Looking forward to it. Thanks for two more great stories. And thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.